And from that very sublime hymn, we're going to read a couple of scriptures that are uh, unusual and not all that often read. But they fit what I'm going to be talking about this morning. First one is from 2 Samuel. Um, after the time, right directly after, uh, David has, uh, it said, at the time when kings go off to war, David was wandering around on the roof of his palace uh, in words that basically he was bored. Sees Bathsheba, we know what happens next. Uh, and then, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he might be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. And these words from the opening of the Gospel of Matthew. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the, the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nishan, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Ebed by Ruth, and Ebed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by wife of Uriah. Hmm. This is the word of God for the people of God. The late New Testament scholar Doug Adams said that there are parent stories and there are grandparent stories. A comparison between the two types of stories reveals that parents tend to clean up and prettify their exploits, often to impress better behavior upon their children. Well, when I was a child, I never talked to my parents that way. Or, well, I didn't wear makeup until I was 18. Now, the grandparent versions of those same stories might be, no, you didn't talk back to me, but instead you gave me a grin that dripped with sarcasm and disrespect. <laughs> or, no, you did not wear makeup until you were 18, but you did dye your hair three different times without my permission before you were 15. Grandparent stories, said Adams, are the more honest of the two types. Grandparent stories include the good, the bad, the beautiful, and the not-so-pretty. Grandparents' stories, he said, tend to tell the whole story. Well, the Bible claimed New Testament scholar Adams is full of grandparents' stories. There is scarcely a virtuous, heroic figure in Scripture without major flaws, blemishes, and sins. Abraham passes off his wife as his sister. Jacob is grasping for everything he can get from the time he emerged from the womb and tried to pull his other, older brother back in. Joseph is an absolute arrogant snot to his brothers before they sell him into slavery, and then they, of course, lie to their father about it. Moses flees from Egypt after committing murder. 
See, in the Bible, we don't hear simply about the hero's journey or the virtuous deeds or the saintly personalities or the flawless liberators. We get grandparent stories. The story of David and Bathsheba and the arranged killing of Bathsheba's husband Uriah is a powerful example of a grandparent story. David, shepherd boy, slayer of Goliath. David, Israel's first real king, a mighty warrior, psalm singer, shrewd strategist. David, who was also strolling around on his roof when kings normally go off to war, is bored, sees beautiful Bathsheba, and pregnates her, fails in his plan to get his loyal servant to give him cover, and then arranges for his loyal servant to be murdered. David is a mighty leader, the one remembered for centuries and from whose house the Messiah was expected. But the Bible also records his supremely immoral actions. Grandparent stories. The Gospel of Matthew's Ancestry.com entry begins with a grandparent story. He includes Jesus' surprising relations in his genealogy. For Matthew includes Judah's sons by Tamar. Now Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law who, after her husband's death, seduced her father-in-law, posing as a woman for hire on the side of the road, which means that Judah hired her. That is not a parent story. <laughs> then there was Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Did Matthew mean for us to re readers to recall the only Rahab mentioned in the Bible, who was the prostitute who hid the spies prior to the destruction of Jericho? And by the way, what were those spies doing but the prostitute? Yeah, the whole thing. In, in Matthew's ancestry list, there is also Boaz, the father of Ebed by Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite woman, a foreigner in Israel, from whom both David the great king and Jesus were descended, descended from a mixed ethnic background. So just in this little part of Jesus' genealogy, Matthew says there were two women who were prostitutes at one point in their lives. There was a foreigner, and there was a great and flawed king. Grandparent stories. We, the church, and we in this nation create huge problems for ourselves when we take grandparent stories and trim and clean them up into parent stories. When we, when we remove, forget, or bury that which causes shame or embarrassment or which supports a story, a version we'd rather erase. We have this problem when we attempt to clean up Christian history. Too many Protestants disown the actions of the church from the death of the apostles in the first century to the beginning of the Reformation in the 16th century. Oh, that wasn't us, that was the Catholics. We would rather not claim killing barbarians in the name of Christ then, or the hierarchy of Christian over non-Christian still practiced today as our history, but it is. We might shake our heads at the virulent anti-Judaism of the Middle Ages, but not draw the line on how those ancient prejudices fed and feed modern anti-Semitism yet today. The Crusades, oh, they were fought centuries ago by Catholic kings and princes and knights. But we know anti-Muslim attitudes are not absent from Protestant Christians today, for prejudice versus Islam still exists. The Inquisition was Catholic hierarchy torturing Protestants, 
But Protestants were the ones who tried and condemned alleged witches, Quakers, and Catholics in the early years of this country. Torture is a part of our Christian history, too. We must tell the whole story about how Christians have behaved. For Christians are responsible for creating and sustaining many of the world's greatest universities, from which we explore everything from the depths of the ocean to dark matter to the mysterious workings of the human mind. And we Christians also ran brutal Indian boarding schools in the United States and Canada. Christian belief in our superiority or the superiority of my kind of Christianity over other religions has caused deep wounds and over centuries time, millions of deaths. We have been responsible for great violence, but we also have been responsible for great love and compassion, often with those who were otherwise considered unlovable. In the ancient world, for instance, Christians won converts to their, by their compassion for the sick, and nobody else would take care of them. And that Christian compassion for the sick extends to founding in the 20th century many of the finest hospitals and healing centers the world has yet known. We have burned and drowned witches and heretics, crusaded against infidels, and built bridges of understanding and love across race and culture on every inhabited continent. When we relate our own United Methodist history, we should also tell grandparents' stories. John Wesley was arguably the greatest churchman in English history. He was also a fierce defender of monarchy and opponent of democracy. And Methodism in America, they left their dear old daddy in England, that's what they called him, became a powerful seed planter of democracy throughout the 19th century. In the 19th century, Methodism was a primary source of American anti-intellectualism and suspicion of anyone with a university or seminary education. Actually, the founder of Reformed Judaism read Methodist sermons for light bedtime amusement because the logic, he said, was so silly. And we founded more colleges and universities than any other denomination. It's both. We have to claim the Reverend John Chivington, Methodist preacher who as a Union Army colonel led the hellacious Sand Creek Massacre against the defenseless Arapaho and Cheyenne, mostly women, children, and elderly people. But we can also claim Georgia Harkness, first woman to teach theology in a seminary, an extraordinary interpreter of contemporary scholarship for lay people. We can claim Bishop G. Bromley Oxman, one of the founders of the American Civil Liberties Union and of the World Council of Churches. We Methodists, South and North, have been complicit in upholding racism and white supremacy and enforcing black codes and Jim Crow and fighting desegregation and equality. Do remember that two Methodist bishops were among the eight Birmingham clergy who wrote the letter that prompted Dr. King to write his famous reply from the Birmingham jail. And we, United Methodists, have made more cross-cultural and cross-racial clergy appointments to lessen the power of racial divisions than, again, any other denomination has. 
Well, it also would be well if we Americans would tell our history as grandparent stories rather than parent stories. Certainly, let's celebrate 1776 and those moving words of the Declaration about consent, freedom, and equality, amplified by Lincoln's address at Gettysburg, battle which ended uh, 1863 on this day, about that new birth of freedom and equality. But we must also incorporate our history of slavery begun in 1619 with the legacy that still survives. We need to be honest that the Civil War, which cost 600,000 lives and ended slavery, did not end racism in law and custom. When we tell our history, we should draw lines from white elected officials in the early republic who were land speculators and Indian fighters and connect those lines with Indian removal and the Trail of Tears to the wars in the West in the 1890s, to Wounded Knee in 1973, and up to pipeline protests today on tribal lands. We should also feel pride at the heroism of D-Day, the generous forward-thinking Marshall Plan, rural electrification projects, and our incomparable, beautiful system of national parks. We can rejoice in the moving poem by Emma Lazarus and the Statue of Liberty, and the meaning of that lady with her torch has had for millions of our ancestors coming through Ellis Island, including my own ancestors. While we also reckon with, in our history, is the Chinese Exclusion Act from the 1880s, closing the doors on immigrants in 1924, our mixed record helping Jewish refugees as Hitler began the final solution, the internment of Japanese Americans, and Islamophobia today. We are certainly aware, painfully aware, that there are competing versions of American history today. Are we the nation of European immigrants who fulfilled a God-given destiny to occupy the continent, become a great people, use the natural resources God put in the ground for us to discover and develop the most prosperous nation that ever was? Are we the nation built on the backs of slave labor and stolen land, using the Christian religion to whitewash all manner of injustice, from slavery to genocide, from racial and gender hierarchies to the triumph of capital over labor, and exercise dominion rather than tilling and keeping? Are we the nation still striving to realize the unfulfilled promises of the Declaration regarding freedom and equality? to create a more perfect union founded on the justice and the rule of law, a nation unified not by religion or ethnicity, but by that creed of freedom and equality, embraced by immigrants from all over the world, by descendants of persons stolen from Africa, and by indigenous sovereign nations? We who, we, who will we be as a nation depends greatly on the stories we tell and whether or not we can embrace our grandparents' stories. Well, sometimes, uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little despairing about the state of things in our country. And I try to remember at those times the great speeches of persons who had more cause for despair than I did, but didn't give in to it. One of those speeches was by Frederick Douglass, and another was by Martin Luther King, Jr., Frederick Douglass was asked to speak to a white audience on July 5th in 1852 regarding the 4th of July celebration. 
And he said, fellow citizens above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. To forget those bleeding children of sorrow today, to pass lightly over their wrongs, to chime in with the popular theme, would be treason most scandalous and shocking and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject and fellow citizens, this is again, this is uh, July 4th celebration, is American slavery. I shall see this day and its popular characteristics from the slave's point of view. I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than on this 4th of July. But Douglas doesn't leave his listeners with shame and guilt. For he also says, fellow citizens, I'm not wanting in respect for the fathers of this republic. The signers of the declaration were brave men. They loved their country more than their own private interests, and though this is not the highest form of human excellence, all will concede its rare future virtue, and that when it is exhibited, it ought to command respect. Your fathers staked their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor on the cause of their country. In their admiration of liberty, they lost sight of all other interests. Their statesmanship looked beyond the passing moment and stretched away in strength into the distant future. They seized upon eternal principles and set a glorious example in their defense. Mark them. In other words, bring that forward today. You may remember that Dr. King gave his famous speech on August 28, 1963. You may know it as the dream speech. But before he hit the high notes of that speech, he picked up right where Frederick Douglass was 110 years before, when he said, it is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as our citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring the sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. And we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity to this nation. Now note how King, as did Douglas, appeals to the founding ideals. So even when we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. This is our hope. This is the faith which I, with which I go back to the South. And then he says, this will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with a new meaning, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And he said, if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. Well, if an ex-slave during the brutal area of slavery and a Christian freedom fighter during the era of Jim Crow's lynching and voter suppression could look straight into the eyes of the whole of American history, tell those grandparents' stories of what has been and is, and yet see and act with courage and hope for what might be, so can we.